Beloved, turn in God's holy word to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. As we've begun looking at this hall of faith, this marvelous chapter that many of us cherish and know so well, we've seen that the author, his desire is to encourage. Right? He's a pastor who, who loves his congregants, who loves those under his charge. He loves them. He longs to see them finish the race that they have begun. He's encouraged them in chapter 10, 39. We are not those who shrink, shrink back and are destroyed. We're not those who apostatize, though who begin but don't finish. We're not those who are destroyed in the judgment of God. Rather, we are those who have faith and preserve our souls. And now, beginning in chapter 11, as we saw last week, we have this this family album, portrait album, if you will, of the, the Old Testament saints who overcame through faith. And we define faith, or the author did for us, particularly as it's used here in the context of Hebrews 11, having kind of a, a, a forward-looking, a, a futuristic goal, right? Having the assurance, having the substance, having the, the guarantee of things hoped for, the conviction or verification of things unseen. It's by faith we saw that the Old Testament saints, just like every saint, New Testament, Old Testament, gains their approval with God. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's imperative that we, we drive that into our hearts and we understand that because that really is a key to understanding how we can please God by faith, faith alone in Christ alone. We said faith is not a blind leap in the dark. It's, it's not a leaping out against all the evidence, but rather it's a, a standing firm in the assurance and the confidence based on what God has revealed to be true. It's, it's an objective reality. Though it's unseen that we have this hope in, this conviction in, it doesn't mean that it's not real just because it's not seen by our human eyes now, but we see it through the eyes of faith. So now we're going to begin to look at some of the examples that the, the writer wants us to, to learn from, to, to take heed from, to let them be our teachers. We're going to see three men today who are going to be instructive for us on what is the true nature of biblical saving faith. And hopefully we'll be able to view our own lives in light of the life that they lived, and God will bless all that I will say. Let me pray for us, and then I'll commence reading. Our Father, we ask now that you would come and be our teacher Lord, unless you give the Spirit, we labor in vain. But, Lord, only these things can be discerned spiritually. So, Lord, give us eyes to see the great and wonderful things in your holy word, that we might see the captain of our salvation, who procured so great a salvation for us, who, as our captain, is our forerunner who's gone before us, and we follow in his train. And, Lord, we thank you that he who began the good work in us is faithful to complete it. But it's not completed in a vacuum. It's completed as you work to will within us what is good and pleasing in your sight. So grant us faith to persevere, to endure to the very end. 
We pray and we would ask now that you would increase and I would decrease. Bless the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart. Our Lord, our rock and redeemer, Jesus Christ, we pray in your name. Amen. Now, let's pick up in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 7, but we're going to look particularly at verses 4 through 7, and the three individuals that I will mention in just a moment. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it, that is faith, the people of old gained or received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created or knit or formed by the word of God so that what is seen, that is what is visible, was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, that is God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he, God, exists And that he, God, rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he, Noah, condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Thus far, the reading of God's infallible, inerrant word. May he add his eternal blessing to it. So right out of the gate, we pick up the same thought was related to us in verse 3. He goes back to Genesis prior to the flood. Right, Having spoken of the origin of the universe in verse 3, he introduces us to three saints. Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Well, why begin with these three individuals, these three men? Saints, we're going to see that in each of them, there's a highlight, an aspect of saving faith that's germane, that's, that's true in every child of God who's been born of the Spirit. You see, though we have the, the host that's laid out before us in Hebrews 11, They all share the the same faith. It's one faith, one Lord, one baptism, just like us, right? But we're going to see three different aspects or or three things that characterize the, the nature of true saving faith. Three lessons that I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to see and he wants us to reflect on as it relates to our own faith. Do we have saving faith? There are all kinds of species of faith in the Word of God. The demons have faith. They tremble at the name of Jesus. John 6, many were following Jesus because their bellies were empty and they wanted to have them filled with bread. They had faith, John tells us. 
So there are all kinds of faith. But there's only one saving, justifying faith. And that's the faith, that's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So let's look at these three individuals. Abel, we're going to see the first lesson. Abel shows us that the saving faith is a Christ-centered faith. Saving faith is a Christ-centered faith. It depends on a sacrifice that we don't bring, that God brings. Secondly, Enoch. Saving faith is, is not just mental assent. It's not just knowledge of right things. It's relational. Saving faith knows God. Saving faith walks with God. He does life with God, or she does life with God. And then lastly, Noah. Saving faith is what? Saving faith is a busy thing, as Luther would say. It's obedient. It hears God's word. And it sets out to obey God. So it's Christ-centered, it's relational, and it's obedient. That's what faith is. That's what we're going to see with these three individuals, with Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Let's look at Abel. First, saving faith is Christ-centered. By faith, you need to have that definition operating in your mind because that's the two key words we're going to see over and over again. By faith... The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Abel did what? He offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now we didn't have time to go back and read the historical narratives that precede all of the examples. But you'll find in Genesis 4 the story of Cain and Abel. There Moses tells us that Abel offered a sacrifice, not just any sacrifice, notice what it says, the firstborn of his flock, whereas Cain brought to the Lord an offering from the fruit of the ground. So the question is, why was Abel's sacrifice more acceptable than Cain's? You're asking that question, right? You're sitting there this morning, you've come to hear the answer to that question. Well, there's a a lot of ink that's been spilt seeking to answer that question. We know that there is nothing inherently wrong with an offering from the harvest. We know this because in other parts of the law, God commanded Moses and the people to offer such offerings. So what then differentiates the offering of Abel from the offering of Cain? While we're not told explicitly in Genesis... I do believe the Bible provides us little hints along the way to tell us, those of us who are insightful, deductively looking and praying and asking God, gives us a few hints why Abel's sacrifice was acceptable and Cain's was not. For example, in Hebrews 9.22, we're told that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, as I was reading many commentators this week, one of them that I came across that I would recommend to you is a gentleman, a Scotsman by the name of Stuart Oliot. I believe Stuart is still alive. 
He's in Scotland, aged man, but a wise man. He was reflecting on the Genesis account. He says this about the Genesis account of God accepting Abel's sacrifice, but rejecting Cain's. He says, from instructions that we are not that are not recorded in Genesis, but which obviously have been given to Abel, Abel knows that he could not come to God as he was. Abel had to come by way of a blood sacrifice, which typified the coming sacrifice of Christ. Saints, Abel by faith, now listen, by faith, Abel obeyed God's word and was accepted. Abel's blood sacrifice pointed to his own sin and to his hope in God's provision of a sacrificial Savior who would come in the fullness of time. Therefore, Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God because it was offered by faith. And therefore, he was commended by God as one who is righteous by faith. Calvin's very succinct here. He says, Abel's sacrifice was preferred to his brother Cain's for no other reason than it was sanctified, that is, set apart by faith. Cain, however, we know, chose a different path. He chose to bring something of his own doing, something of the work of his own hands, rather than a provision of a blood sacrifice. Cain chose this different path, presumably because he thought that he knew better than God. Ignoring God's instructions, Cain invented his own way to come and worship, only to have his offering rejected because it was not offered. Now listen, it wasn't offered in the obedience of what? Of faith. That's why it was rejected. But ironically, as I thought more about this, isn't it interesting? Ironically, Cain did shed blood. He shed the blood of Abel. Ironically. So is there application for us this morning? Yes, I do believe so. True saving faith, now listen, approaches God on his terms in his way, not our way. We're not called to be novel, to be avant-garde, to be creative artists when we come before God. God sets the terms of worship, even as Wes prayed, that we would worship in what? In spirit and what? In truth. And what is truth? Thy word is truth. We worship according to the Word of God, the way that God has prescribed us to worship. You see, self-righteous good works are not how we approach the living God. We must come to God the way that He has prescribed via faith in His Son through His Son's shed blood. You see, the world today still divides into the Cain's and into the Abel's of the world. There are only two species of men, if you will. There's the, the seed of the woman, the righteous of God in Jesus Christ, and the, and the seed of the serpent, the seed of Cain. Those who approach God in a way that seems right to them 
and those who approach God through Jesus Christ. You see, we live in a day when we're told that each person gets to decide for themselves how to approach God. But the Bible is clear, isn't it? Acts 4.12. Now listen, Acts 4.12, the apostles have been arrested. They've been prosecuted. They've been beaten. And they say in verse 12 of chapter 4 of Acts, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved. Truth by definition is exclusive. A cannot equal B and not and equal B at the same time. It's exclusive. But you see, beloved, this message is no more palatable today than it was to the unbelieving world than it was in the unbelieving world than it was in the days of Abel. And I think that what is what the preacher's getting at when he says in verse 6, or rather, and through faith, Abel, though he died, still speaks. Though Abel was a martyr for the faith, his life of faith still speaks. His life continues to bear witness to the grace of God and the mercy found in Jesus. By faith, Abel received God's commendation because he pleased God. And though he died, Abel's life still speaks. And I thought about us. All of us are going to die, save if Jesus comes before we die. And I probably, God willing, in his providence and the honor and the privilege of being the pastor, the minister who ministers at your funeral. And I thought to myself, what will be said about my people at their funeral? Have you thought much about that? We're told that Abel, though he died, still speaks. His faith still speaks. You know that Abel, remember him? Yeah. He was a good man. Trusted Christ, obeyed God, walked with God, pleased God. By faith, he pleased God. What's going to be said about you at your funeral when you finish out your days? Eulogies usually last no more than 10 minutes. Think about that. Think about that in perspective. Juxtapose that to your life. You get 88 years. Most of us are not going to get 88 years. But say you do. Someone's going to get up and give a eulogy, perhaps, at your funeral. I wonder what words will be used to summarize your life. Remember Jim? Man, he had a heck of a golf swing. Remember how much wealth he had? You know how much he took with him? Nothing. How much did he leave behind? Everything. What's going to be sad about you? Some of you are young and you're not thinking like this. You're saying, Pastor, that's a downer. It is. Yeah, I know. Life is precious. But better is the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Why is that? You hear this verse. It's in Ecclesiastes. You're thinking, who wants to go to a funeral? No, a funeral is, is kind of like a little epiphany, a little rest stop in life. We have them occasionally. Just, oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, that's right. Like smelling salt wakens us to our end. We know our end, our days. They're limited. 
And on that last day, your last day, with the lower L, because there's a bigger L last day coming, one's what it's going to be said about you. Will we leave a, a similar legacy testimony to that of Abel? Though he died, he still speaks. So the first lesson, saving faith is Christ-centered. It relies on Christ's sacrifice. Well, secondly, the second lesson, Enoch, saving faith is relational. It's focused on walking with God. Now, isn't Enoch interesting? Five and six. We don't very little about him. And what we do know is found in Genesis 5. And I wonder how many of us would have included Enoch in our list of the faithful. <laughs> of all the saints, Enoch. But what's interesting is that God did. That's very telling. Because I believe the main thing here to understand about Enoch is that he and God were friends. You know that God wants to be your friend? He wants you to walk with him. He wants to know you. He wants you to be known by him. His communion with God was such that we're told in Genesis 5, 24, that one day he was not, for God took him. The writer to the Hebrews expands on this in verse 5, by faith, right? What is faith? The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Enoch, like Elijah, after him, went to heaven without having to die. Now, what was the reason for this? Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. What did he do to please God? He had faith, right? We're told in chapter 5 of Genesis two times that Enoch walked with God. Saints, what we see here is that saving faith is, is personal. It's relational. God is not just a philosophical concept. right? That's what the sophists did in the days of the Reformation. They could talk a great game. They speculated much. There was no end to their speculations. But they didn't know God. They knew a lot about God. They were conversant in all the information about Him, but they didn't know God. You see, God is not just a concept, an idea. The Christian life is not just knowing things, giving mental assent to even true things. Faith is inherently relational. Salvation is about personally knowing God through Jesus Christ. Now, you might say, well, pastor, you're being too pietistic. Well, let me quote the, the one who's the most pietistic, Jesus Christ. John 17, 3, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. It's knowing God. That's biblical piety. That's biblical salvation. You see, we relate to God by faith in Jesus Christ, by talking and walking with him. Enoch, by faith, knew God, and like Abel before him, he, he pleased God. I think this is exactly what the preacher's getting at in verse 6. Enoch drew near to God, believing that God is the rewarder of those who seek him. 
And I can remember growing up as in a Christian quote-unquote home, nominally at best, hearing that verse and saying, you know what, I'm going to take God at face value. The prima facie reading of that is that God rewards those who, in, in, who, who earnestly seek him. God, I don't know you, but I want to know you. And here I stand. Here I am today. Because God is faithful. God is rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. For it's impossible to please God for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. You see, saving faith is always directed toward a personal relationship with God. Beloved, are we relating to God as Enoch did? As a person walking and relating to him by faith and daily relationship with God? Do you spend time in God's word? Do you go to the word going, asking, Lord, show me your glory that I might believe. You say, Father, you are a rewarder of those who earnestly seek you. Lord, show me. Teach me. Here's my heart, O oh God. He's not a worldview. He's not a philosophical concept. No, the living God saves us to walk with him, to be led by his spirit, to not grieve his spirit. You don't just re- grieve a concept. You grieve what? Who do you, who do you grieve? Can you grieve your wife? Yeah, you can grieve your wife. Can you grieve your husband? Yeah, you, you can only grieve a person. Not a concept. Concepts don't grieve. Philosophical ideas don't grieve. But the living God, we can grieve. When we who are called by his name don't walk in the light as he's in the light, we can grieve him. Saving faith is relational, and Enoch illustrates that perfectly. Saints, Genesis tells us that one day Enoch was walking with God, but then God took him. Have you guys seen Enoch? He was just here in the market the other day. Where did he go? I don't know. We've looked all over. Can't find him. Because God took him. One commentator said this, Enoch changed his place, but not his company. For he still walked with God as on earth, so in heaven. You could put it this way. Enoch's walking partner remained the same. The only thing that changed was the location. Enoch was not one who shrunk back. By faith, he determined to walk with God. Is that easy? No. Hardly. But he walked with the assurance of things hoped for, with the conviction of things not seen. He lived to please God. Saving faith is Christ-centered. Saving faith is relational. And then saving faith is obedient. It obeys even when every circumstance around it says, don't believe. Saving faith still believes. Verse 7, Noah. Notice how it begins, right? These aren't examples to, to moralize. Be like Noah, be like Enoch, be like Abel. That's not the objective here. Notice how they begin. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteous that comes by faith. 
Faith is the conviction of things not seen. And you would be hard-pressed to find a better example of a saint who had this conviction than Noah. Noah embodies the idea that faith is focused on what is unseen. God gave a command, which if we're honest, humanly speaking, made no sense whatsoever. Arguably one of the greatest examples of the Bible of what it means to obey God when everything and everyone around you is telling you not to. Faith goes by that assurance, that substance, that guarantee, that title deed, that those things hoped for are real, having a conviction of those things not seen. Just like Abraham. Abraham, I want you to arise and I want you to take that son Isaac, the one whom you love, whom you've waited 25 years for, and I want you to take him and I want you to go to Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice him there. And we're told the very next verse, Abraham got up early the next morning and he went. Not a lot of fanfare. Not a, look at me. Look how great I am, how sacrificial. No, he got up the next morning and he went. Or Joshua and the children of God arriving in Canaan, across the Jordan. I want you to circle Jericho seven times and I want you to blow a trumpet. Yeah, that's what I want you to do. And the walls of Jericho will fall before you. Or the one I read this week. How about this one from 2 Chronicles 20, 21. Jehoshaphat and the people of God are surrounded by a host of armies. The Edomites, the Arameans, all the ites. All kinds of ites. Canaanites. And he tells Jehoshaphat, after Jehoshaphat cries to the Lord, Lord, we don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you, O oh Lord. And you can just see him there with his hands lifted up before the people to the living triune God. We don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. And we're told that the living God, the triune God, heard the word of his friend Jehoshaphat. His son, Jehoshaphat, adopted in Jesus Christ by faith. Jehoshaphat, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go out to war, to gather and muster the armies to go out to war against these enemies of my people. But I want you, Jehoshaphat, to put the choir in the front. <laughs> what? Could you imagine? Put the choir? Yeah, the choir in the front. Because I want them to break out in song, in singing, to the glory of my name. And I'll give you the victory. Who is a God like our God, church? There is no God like this God. Who defeats his enemies with the praise of infants and choirs and widows and orphans. And by dying he wins. Who is this God? Lord, I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I want to please you. I want to buy into the vibe, the, the nihilistic, dark, pagan ways. I want to know you, God. Because your word says, 
Those who earnestly seek me shall find me when they seek me with all their heart, that you are the rewarder of those who seek you. I believe you, O God. You said it. That settles it. I believe. Help my unbelief. You see, this is the way we operate. This is what faith does. Again, not because it's great and big. Right? It can be small. It's a mustard seed. But it's the object of faith that wins the day. Jesus Christ. No, I want you to build a boat, an ark. It's going to be 450 feet long. It's 70 feet wide. It's 45 feet high. Yes, I know you're not near a body of water. You're in the middle of nowhere. The Mediterranean is hundreds of miles east of here or west of here. But this is what I want you to do, to build an ark. And it's, not, it's going to take you 120 years to get it done. The preacher tells us that Noah, having been warned by God concerning events yet unseen, by faith he constructed the ark and reverent fear obeyed God. He believed God's warning of a flood, of an event that had not yet been seen. He believed it. He had the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. You see, that's what justifying faith does. It's, a, it's an obedient faith. Last week we quoted from Westminster Confession, chapter 11, paragraph 2, faith is the alone instrument of justification, right? Then notice what it says. The divines were so brilliant. Not because they were super intelligent, no, because the Holy Spirit gave them illumination to the truth of God and His Word. And they go on, they say, yet this alone instrument of justification, faith, is not alone, in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. Saints, this perfectly describes Noah's faith. Noah heard the command of God, and his faith got busy. It began to work out itself in love. For the next 120 years, saving faith leads to radical obedience even in the face of things that do not make sense. For instance, making a boat in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Let's just agree. All of us. We're told that Noah believed the Lord, and in so doing by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. The apostle Peter calls Noah, a herald of righteousness. That is, by Noah's word and by his obedient life and faith, he condemned the world. By faith, with every hammer blow for 120 years. You know, every hammer blow said it hit the, the gopher wood. Now, what is gopher wood? I, we don't even know what that is. He gathered, cut down all the trees. Every tree he cut down. There were only eight of them. Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, only eight. They all went out. Noah's the head of the home saying, let's go cut some trees. Let's get some pitch, and let's make a boat. Can you imagine that conversation with Mrs. Noah? I mean, really, let's just be honest. Really? Come on. I can imagine that with Mrs. Catherine. He did it with every hammer blow. Repent. Repent. 
For the wrath of God is coming. It's coming. People laughed. They mocked him. Can you, he was the brunt of every joke at the Starbucks. Right? <laughs> hey, you guys got, you see this dude, Noah? What a loser. He's an idiot. He's a fool. Saints, our obedient lives and words do the same today. Some men will love what they see and hear from you. Others will not. They will seek to extinguish you, to silence you, to snuff you out. Because men love what? Darkness, because their deeds are evil. So don't be surprised when you're persecuted for righteousness sake, kids. In Christian school at Veritas, don't be surprised when you take a stand for Jesus that you are opposed. Blessed are you like Noah when men say all kinds of evil against you because of your allegiance to Christ. And notice as well that Noah not only condemned the unbelieving world, we're told that he's an heir of the righteous that comes by faith. Noah by faith believed God's promise and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Beloved, let us not be ashamed of the gospel in the midst of this unbelieving world. Let's have courage by faith. 1 Peter 4, 14. An epistle written to a group of Christians who were being persecuted for their faith, like Hebrews. Peter says this, If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of Christ rest upon you. So three lessons. Abel, saving faith is Christ-centered. We come to God on his terms, his way in Jesus Christ. Secondly, Enoch, saving faith is relational. God's not a concept. He's a person. We walk with Jesus by faith. And then thirdly, saving faith is obedient. And i leave you this question, right? How did Noah escape the judgment of God? Well, he, he made a boat. Yes, but why did he build the boat? Because Noah having the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, got busy building a boat. That's what faith does. It obeys God. That's why Paul calls it the obedience of faith. He acted on what God said. He was a doer of the word, James 1, to 25, not a hearer only. So this morning, some of you here this morning have not confessed Jesus Christ. So how are you going to escape the word of the wrath of God? How are you going to escape? The same way Noah did. You're going to leave here today either believing God in his word and you'll be saved or you will not believe God in his word and you will be condemned. It's really that simple. It's not very complicated. Either you'll find refuge in the ark of the cross of Jesus alone, or you'll try to wing it on your own, kind of like Cain did. 
had more inventive ways of relating to God through works of his own hands rather than through a blood sacrifice. So if you believe, you're saved. If you don't believe, you're condemned. And then the second thing I wanted to say, and I thought about this because I think it's relevant to us, that Noah acted on the conviction of things not seen. We've said that. I've said it numerous times. The Word of God says it. But I want you to hear this, that this morning, if you're waiting on God to give you perfect knowledge and understanding before you obey Him, you'll never have perfect knowledge. The essence of faith is trusting God's Word when everything else around you tells you not to. Isn't that exactly, as I thought about the Advent or coming on Christian, isn't that exactly what Mary did? Mary, you're about 14. You're highly favored of the triune God. Gabriel comes. You're going to have a child. Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. And we're told that Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. You see, a virgin giving birth to the Son of God, now that, beloved, is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And that's exactly what Zechariah had, Elizabeth had, Mary had, Joseph had, Anna had, Simeon had. All the saints, all the Old Testament saints had this assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. May God in his grace grow us up in faith and grant us faith. Lord, increase our faith. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray and we would ask that you would increase our faith, Lord Jesus Christ. We believe, help our unbelief. May we grow and be more childlike more dependent, more Christ-centered, more relational, and more obedient, all because of the faith that you've granted to us as a gift in Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.